Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, December the 16th, 2021. And the show will be rebroadcast on Monday, December the 20th. 2021 from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 87th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show features our special guest, author and professor Dr. David Gibbs of the University of Arizona, a historical expert on the Cold War. And our focus tonight will be on the heated and bellicose environment that we find ourselves in regarding Russia and the United States and NATO. And what's the real story? Who's the real aggressor? We will be examining double standards and try to empathize with both countries' legitimate national security needs and interests. Enjoy. To welcome Alternative News listeners, this is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and today is December 16th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting the show this coming Monday, December the 20th, 2021 at koop.org or 91.7 FM. We are very blessed to have a very special guest tonight, Dr. David Gibbs. And before I formally introduce him, I just want to set the stage for our focus tonight. There has been a continuous barrage of news coverage and government figures talking about the aggression of Russia in the Ukraine area. And in a presentation that President Putin of, of Russia gave, I was interested that it got no coverage. Our show focus tonight is going to really focus on who is the aggressor. And I'm referring to a December 1st presentation that Putin made. And he said, and I quote, by the way, the threat on our western border, and he was referring mainly to Ukraine, of course, is really growing. And we have mentioned it many times. It is enough to see how close NATO military infrastructure has moved to Russian borders. This is more than serious for us, just as the Soviet Union placement of nuclear weapons in Cuba would have been an existential threat to America in 1963. President Putin goes on to indicate that there are real national security issues concerning Russia. Basically, this tension between Russia and the Ukraine, the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigo, of Russia back just a couple of weeks ago on November 24, 2021, indicated his country is boosting combat readiness due to NATO activity near its borders. And of course, this has been flipped 
and presented as Russian aggression that there's been this, these movements of, of military troops and exercises and such. But anyhow, let me just share just a couple more things before we get to our guest. The defense minister went on to say, the tense military and political situation in the world and NATO's increased activity near the Russian borders prompt the need to further develop the armed forces qualitatively. And he was referring to, of course, NATO increased activity which is what made up of some 30 nations, including the United States. And so the top priorities he went on were to raise combat capability and maintaining the nuclear forces' combat readiness and strengthening the non-nuclear deterrence forces. But Dmitry Peskov, and I think this is important because we don't get any perspective from the Russian side of things, and that's why I'm starting to show off with that perspective. Dmitry Peskov is Putin's press secretary, on Sunday, uh, November the 21st, he dismissed as hysteria recent claims by officials alleging that Russia is poised to launch an attack on its neighbors, suggesting Moscow is being targeted in a disinformation campaign. This hysteria, he said, is being artificially whipped up, and it's not logical. We are being accused of some kind of unusual military activity on our territory by those who have brought in their armed forces from across the ocean that is the United States of America. And then finally, he goes on, Ukraine and its Western allies have accused Russia of sending troops and arms to the border to support the rebel forces in the Donbass. And Moscow has denied those claims. And Russia wants NATO to stop concentrating a military fist near its borders and to stop arming Ukraine with modern weapons, Peskov said. This is like billions of dollars of modern weaponry, by the way. And then finally, the Kremlin warned in September that NATO would cross a Russian red line if its military infrastructure expanded in Ukraine. And the Russian defense minister, he pointed to the American planes flying about 12 miles from his country's border, saying that, quote, this month during the U.S. Global Thunder Strategic Force exercise, 10 strategic bombers practiced the scenario of using nuclear weapons against Russia practically simultaneously from the western and eastern directions. And so I wanted to indicate that apparently reports of these satellite images, one columnist, Finian Cunningham, that was following the situation described the satellite images purporting to show Russian mobilization actually refer to military formations nearly 300 kilometers from the border from Ukraine. So I guess once again, we've gone into so many different wars and interventions and such, and they've been done on the pretext of claims that have not been supported by hard evidence in the past. And in fact, in many occasions, are later proved to be untrue and therefore raises a lot of questions and doubts to the veracity of the Biden administration and the New York Times claims that seem to be leading us closer and closer to a terrible confrontation. With that being said, I wanted to introduce and welcome to bringing light into darkness our very special guest, Dr. David Gibbs. Dr. Gibbs is a professor of history at the University of Arizona. He's also the author of a book, First Do No Harm, Humanitarian Intervention and the Destruction of Yugoslavia, uh, that was uh, published some years ago. He got his Ph.D. at MIT back in the late 1980s, and he has his master's in government and has been at the forefront, I think, of a counter-narrative that's very worthy of, of examining. So welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, Dr. Gibbs. Thank you for having me. 
Listen, I, I guess to start off with, I wanted to set the stage. I think I did a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Before we turn to that, I was really enamored by a, a debate that you mm. that you had some years ago, back in July of 2019, about the end of humanitarian intervention debate. I think at Oxford Union with with uh, it was the homeland former Homeland Security guy. Yeah, yeah, Chertoff. Anyhow, yeah. David Chertoff. And can you just back up and recount your concerns about these humanitarian interventions that this type of constant recycling of getting into conflicts gets preceded often by these types of accusations. And I found your remarks very compelling and was wondering if you would highlight them for us tonight. All right. Well, you know, I'll start off then with the issue of uh, you know human rights and how that's played in uh, to U.S. foreign policy and to the current crisis in the Ukraine. I think what we're seeing in the Ukraine, what we've been seeing for the last 30 years is what I would term the weaponization of human rights. You know, it, it's being shifted from being something that is, was an authentic humanitarian concern to being something being used as a justification for war, and that's how it's being used right now, and that's how it's been used again and again. Every war the United States has undertaken since 1990 has always had some, at least partially, humanitarian justification. And in my view, they're mostly implausible, both as a motive and when the U.S. goes to war for humanitarian purposes, it always, as far as I can tell, or almost always, makes the humanitarian crisis much worse than it did before. In the case of Russia, the complaint against uh, Putin, apart from the purely you know, military aspects of this situation, is that Putin is an authoritarian leader who you know, cracks down on opposition, who circumscribes the press. Uh, there have been several dozen people who've disappeared under admittedly suspicious circumstances. That is all true. And also, I should add, he runs something of a kind of very unequal society based on a high level of corruption and kleptocracy. That's all true. But that is not a plausible reason to step up military action against him, nor is it really the motive for the United States. Uh, I, I don't believe this is a sincere motive at all. I think it's using human rights as an excuse, and this is why. Uh, there have been previous governments in Russia that were, in fact, extremely cooperative with the United States, namely Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s, who had much worse human rights records than Putin had. You know, Boris Yeltsin, when he was president in the 1990s, when the Duma, the parliament, refused to do what he wanted, in 1993 he sent tanks to the Duma and began hurling shells at the Duma and killed several hundred people. Uh, the U.S. basically excused this. The New York Times excused this and just indicated... Uh, it's not a big deal. And that went far beyond anything Putin has ever done. And I think the difference here is that Yeltsin was doing what the United States wanted. At times, he almost seemed like an American puppet. And so that's why we liked him, and that's why we excused his human rights abuses, whereas Putin is not doing what the United States wanted. He is, from his standpoint, standing up for his own country's security. And I should add, and this is important to note, contrary to what people are saying, all the evidence we have, is that Putin has been very popular with the Russian people because he's standing up to what the Russian people see as an effort to humiliate their country and threaten its security. Mm -hmm. And in a way, Yeltsin did not do. And so I, I think that the human rights aspect of this is being really abused, and I think people really need to recognize that fact. And it, in no way is this a, a serious motive for what the United States is doing, and certainly the danger of the stoking of conflict with Russia, including potentially the threat of nuclear war, is really a danger to everybody's security and everybody's human right not to be 
subject to war. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we can dismiss this as a motive. Yeah, I was going to say, when you're talking about the inordinate power that Putin has there and the disproportionate wealth and power that's, that's in Russia, we never look at our own country. We have an incredible wealth inequality in this country sure. that certainly r- rivals Russia, and it's one of the very worst in the world as measured by the Gini coefficient. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I always am fascinated by we're very quick to make human rights accusations against other countries. If anyone's interested, they can Google the Chinese, I think, come up every year with the human rights mm. violations of the United States. And it's yeah. a pretty well-documented critique that just doesn't make the news. And I guess that's really the problem, is that you have the New York Times and such rolling out these pieces about Russia you know, is building up for an attack, and, this and, and then that's used as an uh, independent authority to confirm what the U.S. government is saying in, mm. in, in the whole deal. There's the absence of evidence... I wanted to ask you, because I think it's important in the historical context of Russia, you know, we just talked earlier about these planes with strategic bombings of nuclear capabilities flying within 12 miles of the Russian border, as if they don't have any real national security interests or rights. If we had a country like Canada that was a communist-leaning country that had plane exercises 12 miles from our border, it would be completely not tolerated. And you've spoken about, but I wanted to just make sure, and I think it's important to reiterate the history. You had indicated, and I'm quoting from a fairly recent piece that you were quoted in, recent tensions over the Ukraine are raising the possibility of a full return to the Cold War between the two powers, the United States and Russia. What is often overlooked in this emerging crisis is that it began with the U.S. provocation against Russia in 1990. The U.S. government promised that NATO would never be expanded into the former communist states in Eastern Europe. Not one inch eastward were the words of the former Secretary of State James Baker, and the U.S. has violated this agreement by massive expansion into Eastern Europe after 1990s. Can you explain that expansion exactly and try to be as independent as possible and and put yourself in the shoes of the Russian national security deal? uh, And are they overstating their position? What is your evaluation there? Mainly that history since 1990. Okay, well, I think the the origin of the whole conflict with Russia uh, goes back to the issue of NATO. NATO really almost didn't have a function after the end of the Cold War in 1989, and particularly after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, because the whole purpose of NATO was to oppose or dissuade a Soviet invasion of Western Europe, and that was gone. And the Soviet counterpart to NATO, the Warsaw Pact, effectively stopped functioning after 1989. But the United States viewed NATO as just the jewel in the crown of its, on its overseas presence and a source of prestige. And there was a large private sector backing of it as well, particularly arms manufacturers. You know, there was an admiral who said it publicly in the early 90s, the main reason there's an effort to continue with NATO and find some new function for NATO is because the U.S. military can't part with it. The U.S. military loves NATO, and they would never want to give it up, even if it doesn't have a function. So I think that really is the origin of the problem, is that NATO continued and expanded massively, as you said. There's another problem here, which is that the United States did promise never to expand NATO eastward. That was made, well, there have been serious, it was publicly done. In in 1990, specifically what happened is that Germany, East and West Germany, were moving towards reunification. 
And in the United Nations, they needed Russian-Soviet assent uh, in the Security Council not to block the reunification. And the Soviet Union was likely to block it because they, they were fearful of the Germans and also fearful of NATO. And so the United States offered a deal, and the deal was, if you agree not to block German reunification, we will make a solemn promise never to expand NATO eastward. And Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, accepted that. The Soviet uh, delegate voted to allow reunification of Germany, which, of course, happened. And the U.S. almost immediately began violating this agreement. Mm -hmm. There have been two studies recently in the last 10 years, one by the German news magazine Der Spiegel, and another by an academic journal called International Security, published by MIT Press, and both concluded, based on the declassified documents and also the public record, there were multiple assurances, not just by the U.S., but by the German government as well, assuring Gorbachev that there would be no expansion of NATO, mm -hmm. and that was simply disregarded and violated. Mm -hmm. uh, U.S. officials have never denied that they violated the agreement. They just insisted they had the right to do so because the United States can do what it likes, basically. I, I think if you ask American officials, they would first say that it wasn't a big deal, and second of all, they would say it was only a good-faith agreement, not a treaty, and if the Russians were dumb enough to accept our word for it, then they deserve whatever they get. And that really is the U.S. response to it, mm -hmm. as far as we can tell. You know, the U.S. then began expanding into most of the former communist countries in Eastern Europe, not quite all of them, but most of them, and also three former Soviet countries, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And now there's been an effort since 2008 to also add Georgia and the Ukraine mm -hmm. into NATO. And Russia said that that is simply not allowable, and they simply will not allow it. Right. I think the key issue here is, again, to put oneself in Russia's shoes. And the question would be quite simple. The closest analogy I can think of is this. What would the U.S. say if Russia wanted to establish an alliance with Mexico and establish bases in Mexico? And everybody knows perfectly well what the U.S. would do in response to that. And, you know, that's exactly what Russia's doing in response to the United States. You know, I think there's a double standard here, and the double standard is and has always been. If the U.S. does it, it's okay. If other countries do it, it's not okay. And it's not just the case with NATO, but also the issue of meddling in elections. The United States has long meddled in other countries' elections far more probably than any other country in history. You know, I was created to do that in 1947 to try and essentially rig the Italian elections that the Communist Party of Italy was likely to win. And they've become very specialized in that. And uh, in 1983, there's a new agency created the National Endowment for Democracy, mm -hmm. which was intended to do more publicly what the CIA had always done, which, is, again, is to interfere in other countries' elections. In 2015, the head of the National Endowment for Democracy, which, again, is a U.S. government agency, said that, you know, hinted that they might want to consider undermining the Putin government and uh, overthrowing it. He didn't explicitly say it, but he strongly hinted at the possibility. And he did so publicly. I think it was in an op-ed, and if not mistaken, if I don't recall correctly, the Washington Post. And an American official, Victoria Newland, the State Department, said a few years ago, I think it was in, at the end of the Obama administration, that the U.S. had spent $5 billion trying to influence politics in the Ukraine. Yeah, that's a great point. The, excuse me, that was before 2014 and that whole coup period. The $5 billion expenditures was up until her Toria Nguyen speech on December 13th, 2013 at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. 
That was a speech that was sponsored by the U.S. oil giant Chevron. She revealed that in a speech, that's, yep. so it's, it's, it's words from her own mouth. L- let me back up for a second, because you covered some really important ground, you know, that we are an exceptionalist nation, we can do whatever yep. we want type of thing, that's you right. kind of implied. Put yourself in the shoes of, of Putin. I want to return to his speech, because I think it's... He had another speech at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and he talked about the priority of Russian diplomacy, and they want long-term security guarantees that they're yep. not going to be invaded, you know, that they're not going to yep. be attacked, and the concrete agreements that would rule out further eastward expansion. He wants this in writing. This is a red line yep. now for them. Yep. This is a major, yep. major claim. He said, look, we did, right. the, we did the verbal gentleman handshake thing, and that didn't work. Nothing will suffice our satisfaction unless it's a treaty. And these are his words. We need legal, juridical guarantees because our Western colleagues have failed to deliver on verbal commitments they've made. Specifically, everyone is aware at the assurances they gave verbally that NATO would not expand to the East, but they did absolutely Mm -hmm. the opposite in reality. He goes on Mm -hmm. a, a little bit further in his comments. We understand that any agreements must take into account the interests of both Russia and all other states in the Euro-Atlantic region. He's, he's acknowledging everyone has national security interests. We need to sit down and make sure we satisfy everybody. I hope you will convey this signal to the leaders of your states, he says. And what he wants to be conveyed is that I said I would like to stress that Russia is interested precisely in constructive collaboration and equitable international cooperation, and there remains the central tenet. So you were mentioning these bases that what if there were some Russian bases in, in Mexico? It's striking to me that we have over 700 military bases throughout the whole world. I don't think Russia has more than two or three outside its own country. And, and yet with the positioning and the, this whole Russia is the aggressor mantra that just continues to be repeated and then becomes adopted by the American psyche and is adopted without evidence of its veracity, in fact... Russia did not invade Iraq in 2001. Russia did not invade Libya in 2011. Russia did not attack Syria and illegally occupy to this day the eastern section of Syria. Russia did not promote the Ukraine coup in 2014 that led to the civil war of the last seven years. Russia is not supporting the Saudi Arabian terrorizing of Yemen, which is described as the greatest humanitarian disaster in the world for the last number of years. Instead, that is the U.S. aggression expressed time and time again through our foreign policy, yet Russia is the aggressor, is adopted in the psyche of a huge percentage of Democrats and Republicans, which I think is preparing the American public to accept these unacceptable risks that Putin is speaking to. I mean, this is a major, he's really put his foot down. And I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit more about, from his perspective, what are their red lines? Well, I think he stated it, and he stated that, you know, he will not allow Ukraine to join NATO, and he wants assurances from the United States I assume perhaps also from NATO officially, the Secretary General of NATO, uh, in writing, that it, it will never happen, that the mm-hmm. Ukraine will not join NATO. Right. And that it seems to me that's a perfectly reasonable insistence, and the U.S. has firmly refused right. to give it, saying basically, you know, Russia has no say in this. And 
Well, you know, it is on their borders, and the question would be how would the United States respond to something like that? And again, there is a double standard here, and it's an unreasonable double standard. It's one that really is threatening everybody on the planet. Yeah, it's really Russia that is doing that. It is the United States. Let me just interject. I apologize for interrupting, but this is really an important deal because what the American public get, I'll just call it propaganda because I, I think that's what it is. What the American public get is that Russia should not be dictating to any country what they can do and what they can't do. But what Russia is uh, saying is that if they are to allow Ukraine to become a NATO nation, then guess what? By the NATO collaboration, they can move those military forces right up to their doorstep. And if Ukraine is attacked because of its aggression, all of NATO will be likely to be backing them. Anyhow, it's not that Russia is trying to dictate to another country what they can and what they cannot do. It's just a national security interest that would be absolutely violated in an unacceptable way for any country that's trying to reasonably defend their national security. Is that right? No doubt they are trying to dictate to the Ukraine that they would not be allowed to join NATO. That is true, but it's doing it in exactly the same way the U.S. would do with Mexico. And in that sense, it's a perfectly understandable position from the standpoint of Russia. If we're looking at it with any objectivity, we'd see very clearly that there's a very simple way to defuse this crisis, which is to give those guarantees that uh, you know the Ukraine will not be joining NATO, there'll be no U.S. military bases, and that probably would settle the matter. But uh, there probably would have been no destabilization in the first place in the region if that had been given. Mm-hmm. If NATO had never expanded eastward, as the U.S. promised to do, if that hadn't been violated, there would have been no problem. And again, actually, what Russia is asking for is merely enforcement of something the U.S. has already agreed to, which is not to expand NATO. I, I can't imagine what would be more reasonable than to insist on enforcement of an agreement that had already been made. Uh, Dr. Gibbs, we need to take a quick break, a pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, and we'll be back to rejoin our important discussion right after this. Don't touch that dial. 